0: Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors educational podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Professor Michael Klosner of Stanford Law School. Professor Klosner is the co-author of a recent article entitled SPAC Disclosure of Net Cash Per Share. Welcome back, Professor. Thanks for speaking with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Professor, you have recently proposed an approach to SPAC disclosure of dilution and you suggest that the SEC should include this in the proposed rules that they're developing. Can you begin by framing for us why this is important?
1: Sure. So a central problem with SPACs is that they create a lot of dilution for public shareholders. For SPACs that merged in 2021, for example, there was an average of about $6.50 in cash underlying each share. In contrast, shareholders paid about $10 or more for those shares and could redeem those shares for $10. In effect, the average SPAC gives shareholders a choice between redeeming their shares for $10 and investing only $6.50 in a merger target. That investment option tends to be a bad deal for shareholders who generally see share prices fall a lot after a merger, yet, dilution of equity down to $6.50 per share is not well disclosed at all by SPACs in their proxy statements.
0: Professor, can you briefly review for us the sources of SPACs dilution?
1: Yeah. So to begin with, the sponsor takes 20% of post-IPO equity essentially for free. They call that a promote. Second, warrants are issued to IPO investors for free. Third, underwriting fees and advisory fees are very high, especially when one takes into account the fact that many shares issued in a SPAC's IPO will be redeemed, and those fees are not scaled back in relation to non-redeemed shares.
0: Professor, in your proposal, you say that the key fact that a SPAC should disclose is how much net cash per share it has underlying each share. Can you explain the concept of net cash per share?
1: Yeah. Total net cash is the amount of cash the SPAC will contribute to the combined company in a merger, taking into account the cost of outstanding warrants. It's what the target shareholders will, in effect, receive in exchange for a portion of their company. Net cash per share is total cash divided by shares outstanding at the time of the merger. The calculation of net cash per share adds up the SPAC's cash and subtracts the value of its outstanding warrants. Consistent with the SEC's direction, we treat warrants as liabilities, but if we treat them as equity, we would end up with essentially the same numbers. The rest of the calculation involves adding up the cash that the SPAC will have when it Merges and the shares it will have outstanding. Because SPAC management won't know how many shares will be redeemed, this calculation needs to be performed on a few levels of hypothetical redemption. So, for example, zero redemptions, 25% redemptions, 50% redemptions, 75% redemptions, and 90% redemptions. That way, a SPAC shareholder can think conditionally on how much cash will I be investing in a target, if redemptions are X amount.
0: So, Professor, why is net cash important to SPAC shareholders?
1: Well, net cash is, in effect, the currency with which SPAC shareholders will buy a fraction of the target company. So, at least as a starting point, if a share has $5 of underlying net cash, That $5 is what will be used to acquire a portion of the target company. A reasonable expectation is that the SPAC shareholder will receive in return about $5 worth of the target company. If that happens, and there's every reason to believe that it will, the SPAC shareholder's shares will be worth $5 following the merger.
0: And is $5 a realistic figure?
1: Yes. The figures varied. As I said, for all of 2021, my co authors and I estimated that net cash per share was about $6.50. That number was relatively high for a SPAC because redemptions were low during the SPAC bubble that extended into early 2021. For the last quarter of 2021, net cash per share was $5.40. For the period 2019, To mid 2020, net cash per share was $4.10. So, net cash per share has varied over time, depending largely on the levels of redemptions, but $5 is a realistic number to work with.
0: So, Professor, do you find that net cash per share is correlated with post merger share value?
1: Yes. This was a key finding of our original research. If we look at prices immediately after the merger, there is a statistically significant correlation with pre-merger cash per share. Six months and a year later, that correlation grows even stronger. So for example, for SPACs that merged in 2021, as I said, the average net cash per share was about $6.50. Today, those shares are trading at under $6.00. When one takes account the change in the market, there's a rough equivalence between pre-merger cash per share and share price today.
0: Professor, are you saying that all the SPAC has to contribute when it merges with a target company is cash?
1: Well, a SPAC's only asset is cash, and cash is certainly important. But it could be that a SPAC's managers or sponsor will stay with the company after the merger and add value. Or it could be that simply becoming a public company will be valuable for the target. If so, a SPAC should disclose the sources of value that it expects as a result of the merger. But regardless of whether SPAC sponsors and management see non-cash sources of value, they still should disclose net cash per share. As I said, that is the key asset of the SPAC. A sponsor's belief that he or she will add value or that going public itself will add value shouldn't excuse a SPAC from disclosing the amount of net cash they have underlying the shares.
0: Okay, so net cash per share is important. Can you explain how it should be disclosed?
1: Yeah. First, a SPAC should add up the total amount of cash it expects to deliver in a merger. It should begin by assuming no redemptions. Total cash includes cash in the trust, Cash expected from pipe investments. It shouldn't include debt. The SPAC should then subtract expenses associated with the merger. Those include the deferred underwriting fee and advisory fees that the SPAC and the target will pay out in connection with the merger. These are often surprisingly high. Next, the SPAC should subtract the value of outstanding warrants and other equity derivatives, such as the conversion feature of convertible debt. So that's how the numerator of the net cash per share fraction is calculated. For the denominator, the SPAC should add up total shares, that is public shares, founder shares, pipe shares, and any other shares outstanding, or that may be issued under rights or anything like that at the time of the merger. Finally, as I said earlier, this fraction should be computed for a few hypothetical levels of redemption. Redemptions reduce cash and they reduce shares, with the net result being lower net cash per share. The more redemptions, the less net cash per share.
0: So, Professor, you performed this calculation based on the SPAC's shares outstanding at the time of the merger. Can you explain why this is the correct figure as opposed to net cash per share of the combined company after the merger?
1: Yes. Now, many people in SPAC world believe that dilution should be based on shares outstanding of the combined company after the merger. This obviously would reduce apparent dilution because there would be more shares in the denominator, but it's clearly wrong. Their idea seems to be that if you think of all SPAC costs, including the promote and the warrants and everything else, it largely disappears after the merger. This can't be true. The way to think about cash per share, as I said earlier, is that this is the amount that will be invested in a target company. There's every reason to believe that the target knows how much cash it will be getting. And there is every reason to expect that the target will exchange a fraction of its company equal to that value. And in fact, this is what we find to be statistically true. When people in SPAC world say that the costs of a SPAC disappear after the merger, they're implicitly saying that the target shareholders will absorb these costs. Some in fact say this explicitly, but why would this be true? Why would targets volunteer to absorb a SPAC's costs? As I said, we find that they don't as a matter of empirical analysis. It's the SPAC shareholders empirically that bear those costs.
0: Professor, one point that some people might disagree with is your subtraction of the value of warrants from a SPAC's cash, the net aspect of net cash per share. If a warrant never pays out, should it play any role in this calculation?
1: Yes, it clearly should. This is another misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding of the nature of warrants and a misunderstanding of how warrants are treated as a matter of accounting and financial analysis. A warrant is a contingent claim against the company, and therefore, it's a contingent reduction in equity. Contingent claims can be valued. They are a real cost, and they should be valued and treated as a real cost. That's what the calculation that I propose would do.
0: Professor, final question. By proposing that SPACs calculate and disclose net cash per share, are you asking SPACs to do something that will be burdensome?
1: In a word, no. SPAC sponsors and management have these numbers available. All they need to do is assemble them into a fraction and explain the sources of each element of that fraction. For a SPAC, it's easy to do. For a shareholder, looking at a proxy, it is not easy to do.
0: That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank Professor Michael Klausner of Stanford Law School. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at jeff, J-E-F-F at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.